Hi, this is Leah Hechtman. Despite advances in our understanding of the microbial, hormonal and immunological drivers behind endometriosis, the pain associated with this condition often persists, even after treatment. We now know that people with endometriosis have fundamental neurological and neuropathic differences in how they perceive and handle pain. Join me live online on Wednesday, June 7th for Bioceuticals Clinical Mastery, the neuropsycho basis of endometriosis. In this 90-minute session, I'll be diving deep into neurocircuitry, pain perception, neuroangiogenesis, and the underlying pain mechanisms of endo. I'll also be including a case study to demonstrate how my research and clinical approach could translate into clinical practice for you. Go to bioceuticals.com.au to reserve your place today. Hi, and welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional, and complementary medicine. FX Medicine acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia where we live and work, and the connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. With us today is naturopath Daniel Sippel, Dan is passionate about the areas of autoimmune disease, gut and microbiome modulation, hormone optimization, stealth infections, immunity, and anti-aging medicines. And he's also an avid researcher too. Daniel has a very successful clinical practice near Mollymook on the south coast of New South Wales. And as a result of his personal health journey, combined with his clinical expertise, he has a unique ability to recognize where to begin with every individual he works with. Welcome to FX Medicine, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Lisa. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I'm very excited to chat with you today. So let's talk about autoimmune disease. And if we look at the statistics, we know there are more than 80 different autoimmune conditions that exist in the literature. And a whopping 5% of Australians have an autoimmune disease. And that could possibly be higher because a lot of people don't know they actually have one. So I think we all know as practitioners, what autoimmune disease is, but the recognition that individuals could have multiple autoimmune conditions at one time is relatively new. And the term multiple autoimmune syndrome was only described in 1988 and basically describes the association of at least three autoimmune diseases in the same patient. So the research suggests that approximately 25% of patients with autoimmune diseases have a tendency to develop another autoimmune condition. So that's like a quarter of all people. There's very little education around this. So I know that autoimmunity is your speciality. So very excited to chat with you today about this. So can we start off, can you tell us what are the main autoimmune conditions that you see in your clinic? So Hashimoto's thyroiditis is probably the, the main condition that pops up in clinic. I almost feel like at the moment there's, you know, there's not one person that comes through that doesn't have autoimmunity of some type. Yeah. Um, obviously, I tend to lend myself and market myself to that group of patients. Um, Hashimoto's is probably the biggest, I'd say, Lisa. And yeah. there's also a lot of patients that I see in screening them and doing sort of more advanced blood work as you, as you kind of do that you detect thyroid antibodies Mm. and these people might not necessarily have been diagnosed with Hashimoto's or Graves disease at that given point in time 
or might not even be aware that their current symptoms is sort of linked to that pathology. But that group of clientele is quite large too, I would say, where we say, oh, you know what, there's actually an autoimmune process going on against your thyroid. And uh, they typically freak out a bit, as you'd expect. But yeah, um, yeah there's, there's a lot of people in that camp, I find, kind of walking around with a disconnected sort of array of symptoms mm. or seemingly disconnected. And that could be anything from fatigue to brain fog to, to dry skin to weight gain to low libido, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, to answer the question, it's definitely Hashimoto's, but there's probably a large group of clientele um, that have that low-level autoimmunity but are mm. preclinical. Yeah. yeah. And how frequently are you seeing patients that have multiple autoimmune conditions? So they say, for example, they have the Hashis, but do they have celiac as well? Mm, yeah, more, more and more frequently as I, as my practice grows, I would say. Mm. Um, and it's sometimes, not to take the credit, but it's sometimes myself that, that happens to find the second or the third yeah. and say, you know what, unfortunately the, the autoimmune is in this sort of um, area of the body as well. And that could be connected tissue or joints in the case of rheumatoid or, or whatever it might be. But I think, you know, we're, we're just in such a good position, Lisa, as, as CAM practitioners to kind of go, well, okay, this is happening, but let's get back to the drivers here and let's yes. remember that it's an immune condition. It's not, the, you know, not to get pinned down on the fact that it's targeting your joints or it's targeting the brain, mm. like an MS or whatever it might be, but that it's a condition of the immune system and bringing that homeostasis and balance back to the immune system is something that I'm super, super fascinated with. Yeah, I think that's so important because definitely within allopathic medicine, there is this focus on just, say, for example, if it's Hashimoto's, just the thyroid, or if it's rheumatoid arthritis, just the musculoskeletal system. But what we know yeah. is that it, the major problem is really with the immune system. And that's kind of where I think as holistic practitioners, we really shine and that's where we really need mm. to focus. So how aware then are your clients when they come in to see you and they've got one autoimmune disease, for example, that they could be predisposed to getting another one or, or, or another two or three or four, essentially multiple autoimmune syndrome? Yeah, I would say quite unaware. I find a lot of people stick to their primary diagnosis and mm. touch wood, they, you know, not everyone goes on to develop MAS, but in the folks that do, I would say that a lot of them are unaware that their lingering symptoms, even if the primary condition is sort of in remission or under control, are related back to that rogue inflammatory process. And as I mentioned earlier, for someone that can be just sore joints in the morning, headaches, fatigue, very, very vague and disconnected symptoms. But, you know, it's in, just in doing those more advanced sort of pathologies and running additional panels that you can see, okay, well, there's still a lot of information and the question is what's triggering that? What antigens are still mm. triggering the immune system to keep that polarisation going on with those um, TH17 cytokines, which I'm sure we'll talk all about. Um, <laughs> but that's where we play detective. And, mm. and I think we're just in such a fortunate space to be able to use a combination of you know, ancient remedies and, and the, the modern functional testing and the pathologies and so forth and combine the best of the two. And it's not uncommon for patients to seek a naturopathic approach with their autoimmunity and you get into taking their story and they say, no one's ever asked me any of these questions before. You know, I'm sitting here telling you this, this whole journey of how it unfolded and it's only now that I'm actually realising it myself, how yeah. it's unfolded. We're just, you know, really blessed to be to be in that position. Yeah, I think so too. I, th I think it's really, really such a privilege to sit down with someone and be able to listen, first of all, because I think sure. that's a really underestimated kind of tool in terms of that healing process yeah. for the client, just feeling heard. Uh, but also, exactly. yeah, just getting to kind of put the whole timeline together because we know that 
autoimmune conditions, generally it's not something that just happens in a week or two. They often have like a long timeline where it's been initiated and kind of simmered for a while. So you know how we were talking about clients coming in and being predisposed to multiple autoimmune syndrome? Is that something that you educate your clients on when they come in and they've been diagnosed with just one? Do you actually talk to them about the fact that, well, 25% of people actually get another and this is kind of what we need to do to reduce or do you just not say anything? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I try not to, Mm. um, if I'm being really honest. And and that's because often they're coming in and so kind of overwhelmed with Mm. with the whole concept of just having the the first one. And it's not that I avoid talking about that in particular. And often it does come in um, in subsequent sort of consults, particularly if there is that sort of pathology where it's still really playing out and you can tell that Mm. the autoimmunity is very much at play. But I try and avoid... The, the stats, so to speak, you know, mm. that, that there is a very, very high likelihood that you are going to continue to develop them. My hunch is, though, Liz, is that if you can get to the drivers, mm. that perhaps we can halt that process despite genetic predisposition and so forth. Obviously, as a naturopath, throwing every, everything at it to, to keep it that way. But unless it's very much warranted and they're probing and they're very interested and in, in asking about it, um, I'll usually yeah, keep that one to myself. Mm. <laughs> so I actually do, <laughs> I do tell yeah. them, I tell my clients, I don't necessarily say it's 25%, but I do kind of give the bit of information that we know that when you have one autoimmune condition, you're much more likely to get another, but only if those underlying drivers aren't dealt with. And I I think you hit the nail on the head there that if we kind of manage those underlying drivers, and we'll talk about what those are in a sec, then it's Mm. unlikely, hopefully, that they will get another and another. It's just generally where they're not dealing with those. I think that we run into problems there. Exactly. So when we look at multiple autoimmune syndrome, the research suggests that we can actually group and kind of categorise certain autoimmune conditions into families, right? Yes. So there's three types that they've brought up in the literature, I think, dating back to the 80s. And it's kind of like of the three groupings, the type 2, um, you'd probably agree, happens to be the one that's most prominent. Mm. But, but I'll just spell them out. So type 1 is essentially um, the combination of myasthenia gravis, thymoma, polymyositis and giant cell myocarditis. So these are the ones that are probably rarer to see clinically and yeah. we, we don't see a whole heap of. Whereas type 2, um, that's anything from Sjogren's syndrome, RA, primary biliary cirrhosis, scleroderma and autoimmune thyroid disease. Mm. So we see type 2 most commonly. I think a lot of practitioners hearing this would agree too. And the third type is the autoimmune thyroid disease, the myasthenias, Sjogren's, pernicious anemia, thrombocytopenia, Addison's, mm. type 1 diabetes, vitiligo and so forth. So Mm. type two and three, uh, I'd say, are the ones that we see most crossover with. Yeah, definitely. I I definitely see two and three in my clinic. So do you think there is much recognition by Western medical science on these types? Despite that research grouping, I don't because I feel like the allopathic approach is very much still based on the the symptom control and Mm. that global immune suppression kind Mm. of model, Mm. you know, and I've had many a conversation with, with different GPs and patients as well when you take their stories where they'll sit there in front of their specialist or their GP and say, but what about these thyroid antibodies? And it's like, don't worry about them. Mm. You know, that's, it's, it's always sort of a dead-end road. You know, We don't yeah. know why they're there. They are there. Don't get stressed about it. Just <laughs> kind of dis- disregard it. <laughs> and again, naturopathically, we're kind of looking at that going, well, 
hopefully we can intervene. There's obviously mm-hmm. a process happening here. We don't want to wait till it gets to that point to where you're suddenly fulfilling, you know, eight of the 11 criteria mm-hmm. to get a diagnosis and then respond and react. No, we want to, we want to get at it whilst it's infancy and halt that. Yeah, as I said, I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll drill into the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. of what can, you know, drive that, but that's where I get really excited. There's just so many tools that we've got available for us as um, CAM practitioners. Yeah, I get excited too. Very. <laughs> so are there any tests? I mean, when you're looking at blood tests, are there things, if someone's tested positive with thyroid antibodies, for example, or rheumatoid factor, are there other things on the bloods that kind of alert you to the fact, well, oh, there could be more than one autoimmune condition going on here? Yeah, and it's where, where you know, it can get a little bit tricky because often it's a case where Patients, even if they want to explore those avenues, are often mm. told, hey, there's just not any chance of that happening because it's, you know, I'm not bulk billing that. And, um, yeah. you know, Medicare really clamping down with the GPs at the minute, which makes it even more difficult. And then, you know, the other option is that the patient pays for it themselves, which some are very, very happy to do. Mm. And others, understandably, you know, it's not cheap either. It can be quite expensive. So within reason, we, we do sort of go looking, but it's usually the, the ANAs and the ENAs that kind of allude the practitioner to the fact that, hey, there, there might be something, you know, above and beyond that initial diagnosis happening here. And I've had plenty of patients where they might test positive to an ANA and then get the ENA extractable nuclear antigen antibodies run as well. And all of those, you know, six to eight or whatever there are, mm. there might be two that are positive. Yeah. And that, you know, you're like, oh, this is not looking good. But again, the specialist or the GP are kind of saying, you're not fulfilling a criteria yet. So off you go and come back in 12 months and we'll reassess. Which is frustrating. Yeah. But I think, you know, what's beautiful about what we do is that we don't tend to be necessarily like condition focused when it comes to autoimmunity. I think that's a real beauty is that we're looking at just modulating the immune system as a whole, as you said earlier. So no matter what's come up, it's kind of the same sort of protocol. I often see things like for me when I'm looking at patients' blood tests, low neutrophils, um, low platelets sometimes with the yes. Graves picture. And sure. for me, I've had patients that have had Graves disease, quite a few, that actually have those low levels of platelets. And I've kind of said, oh, what's going on there? And they, they've been told, mm. oh, well, that's just your normal. But actually, that's another autoimmune condition whereby the immune system's actually attacking those yes. platelets, causing that. And so they don't even realise, oh, I've got Graves, but I've also got this second kind of condition going on here. Similarly yeah, with, yeah. I think, thyroid, you might see vitiligo or alopecia. They all just kind of go together. So my next question, I guess, is, and I think you've kind of alluded to this already, but where do you see the place of naturopathic medicine in the management of client with multiple autoimmune syndrome? Yeah, so I think it's meeting the patient where they're at. That's what I always try to keep in mind when, when we start in a case with an autoimmune patient. And sometimes it is a kind of red flag with screaming inflammation and you just have to get the symptoms under control to bring some some clarity to their health picture. And um, a lot of what I do is, is education. And I've said it on other podcasts too, I still stick to my four patients every day. Mm. Um, and I do that to give them that time and super, super you know, invested in, in the education side of it because I, I really feel like once the things, the underlying mechanisms are explained, not on a clinical level, but a basic level to so the way the patient understands what's going on, then the solutions can become 
uh, a lot more obvious and they can become solutions focused. And like mm. you said, you're getting them out of the thought of why is my body attacking me? Mm. And to back to the you know the basics of I've got immune dysfunction. My immune system is being aggravated by usually a combination of these factors mm. and, and, and explore those pathologies with the patients. Mm. Um, and I think that helps a whole heap, you know, getting them out of that kind of helpless personality where it's just like I have no control over this. Yeah. Why me? Um, you know, life's over, I'll never be able to enjoy da 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 yeah. And instead filling them with accounts of remission stories mm. that's been shown in the literature to be so, so pivotal in, mm. in just a patient's outlook, um, not with only autoimmunity but different cancers and stuff like that too. So, yeah, meeting them where they're at is very crucial at least mm. to start with. And then once you get some, sort of some balance and you've cleaned up the diet and you've modulated the immune system to some degree, that's where I usually go digging with the pathologies and that, that can look like anything from as simple as a full blood count to full T-cell blood work, as well as underlying microbiome drivers and looking at the gut level. You know, are there, is there dysbiosis? Is there gut permeability still mm. driving this? What dietary antigens could, could there be in there that are still keeping that immune system really aggravated and so mm. forth? An area I didn't mention as well in the initial goings is the importance of just stress and sleep. I oh, feel like favorite. that is just, yeah, <laughs> it's just too, too important not to, to mm. overlook I find myself constantly going back to patients sometimes in the third, fifth and consults beyond that saying, what's the sleep quality like mm. now as, as opposed to what it was three or four months ago? You know, has it slipped? Have you been too hyper-focused on the herbs and the, this part of it? And, yes. You know, sleep's really slipped again. Okay, well, we've got to deal with that because if you're not sleeping, you're not getting on top of your inflammation. Yeah. I feel like sleep is really underestimated when it comes or underutilised as a, as a tool when it comes to managing autoimmune conditions. And we know from the research that the immune system and the T-cells in particular do different mm. things at different points in the night. Like the the T-cells right. actually have their own circadian rhythm. So not only is getting enough sleep important, but getting enough at the right times. And, you know, often with autoimmune patients, we find that they can be burning the candle at both ends and staying yes. up past midnight. And, and that really does impact the state of their immune system. So we see that lack of sleep is associated with higher mm. risk of autoimmune diseases. We see that in shift workers as an example. So yeah, sleep's a really big one. And I think coming back to what you were saying that yes, we can be doing the herbs and all that sort of stuff, but if we don't get those foundations right, then we're kind of missing the point, aren't we? Absolutely. The, the, the nature time, the sleep, the, the basics, mm. you know, um, and, that, and that can be stripping away from city life for one person or getting away from a toxic relationship for another, mm. getting out of the mouldy building for another. So mm. reducing the, the inflammatory insults and then once you've got them at that kind of ground level, that's where I really feel like the stage is set for the healing. And mm. I always tell patients, hey, this has been possibly accruing for 25 years. It's not going to get better in a month. Mm. It could take us two years just to get things really under the control but you need to stick with it the worst thing you can do is give up on yourself yeah. and you know bounce between different therapies you really really have to stick with it and be diligent yeah, consistency, I think, is really where it's at with management of autoimmune conditions, especially multiple autoimmune conditions. It's something that's taken a long time to get to there and it's it's not something that generally just goes away in a month or two. You've kind of got to be in it for the long haul. But patients that are, they are the ones that are able to reduce their medication requirements and modulate their immune system where it's just that yes. slugging away and just being consistent. Yeah. So can we go back to... 
I know you just said that you see four patients a day, right? Um, mm-hmm. Just so that you have adequate time for that education, which I just think is so great. And I think a lot of our listeners will really love to hear that, that you're spending quality time educating, which I, I just think is so important for this patient group. Yes, exactly. And refined over the years in clinical practice. But I allow myself that time, not only for the consult, but it's the good half an hour, 40 minutes after that where I'm putting together notes for them. Mm. Um, you know, because you can say a million and one things in the consult and it can make sense to the patient at the time. Mm. But if they've got nothing to reflect upon when they go home to drive home those, those really crucial points, I feel like it's kind of lost or they yeah. might only retain a portion of that. So that follow-up, I feel like, is really important for them. And again, just to bring them back to the you know, what's happening, why we think it might be happening, what we're doing about it, and this is kind of the long-haul approach here. Mm, love it. So let's talk about some of those underlying drivers of multiple autoimmune syndrome. Let's start with stealth infections because I know it's not something I focus much on at all in my clinic, but I know. They certainly were the impetus for my, my own autoimmunity amongst other things, of course. There's never just one thing on its mm. own. But no, it's, it's one of those scenarios where you take a patient's case and a lot of the time, not always, they're saying sort of it, it sort of was around this time when, you know, I was super stressed and I was working really long hours and I got this really gnarly infection when I went overseas or I got diagnosed with glandular fever and, and I've never been well since. Or we had, like I said earlier, a, a mouldy, you know, apartment complex and then you're thinking mycotoxins. So how that relates to autoimmunity is is they're looking at it with research with the whole molecular mimicry model or mm. cross-reactivity. So I'll just explain that quickly. That's this concept whereby the immune system has lost tolerance to know what's friend and foe, so it can no longer distinguish between self and non-self. But that pathogens, and there's been a number of them confirmed in, in the research now linked to certain conditions, which I'll go into, share similar sort of peptide sequences in their DNA, and the immune mm. system is kind of surveilling them and you know, sampling that, cross-reacting with our own tissue because it looks almost identical to, to the same sequence. And so for the case of thyroid disease, for example, H. pylori is the one that's very well known. Um, Yersinia enterocolitica, that's a, a gut bug, that's another one that's quite linked um, in addition to the, the good old Epstein-Barr virus. And that research with EBV in particular goes back decades now with, with that cross-reactivity model. And I'm sure there's heaps out there that haven't been looked at that we also are encountering. At the end of the day, though, it does come back to why does the immune system become dysfunctional? Though? Yes. Because we know with EBV in particular, 90% of the you know, the world's population has mm. that, but not 90% then go on to develop autoimmunity. So mm. there's obviously, you know, nuances underneath that, such as the thymus, for example, which I'll talk about and how um, the integrity of that you know, interplays with how pronounced that person's immune response is or how mm. weak it is. Mm. What, what are their, you know, the genetic level? Are there, are there SNPs and different polymorphisms in the way these people respond to certain pathogen antigens and so forth? So mm. that's a big part of it, that cross-reactivity. We see that carry over also to dietary antigens. So mm. again, that same concept where protein sequences from, say, casein from dairy or, or gluten from wheat and oats and barley um, have that cross-reactivity with different tissue organs. And celiac disease is the most well-known with, you know, being an established link between gluten and autoimmunity mm. and that being the, the very much, you know, prominent trigger there. But I do kind of see the dietary aspects 
being kind of an encourager for those people that are predisposed and that that's via that pathway with gut permeability. So if people have the genetics for autoimmunity and all of the, the things are aligning to encourage this disease process and they're eating, you know, a lot of gluten and dairy with a leaky gut or an impaired gut barrier, do these things encourage the autoimmunity to eventually develop through mm-hmm. that loss of tolerance and therefore the immune system starting to attack things that it shouldn't. Yeah, definitely. So many people feel obviously celiacs have got to take it out, but there's there's mm. research with hashies, there's research with type one diabetes, you know, reducing that autoimmune response when they remove gluten. You've talked a little bit about stress. What about stress and hormones and things like that? How much of a importance do you kind of place on those in your clinic? Yeah, huge, absolutely huge, and that, that's where you've got to play detective, Lisa. So mm. if you've taken out the dietary antigens and the, the autoantibodies still quite high and it's been a considerable amount of time, you've tested for gut permeability and it's come back clear, you can kind of rule that out mm. and, and, and say, all right, well, perhaps in your case, your individual case, gluten or the dietary antigens aren't such a prominent trigger. We have to move over and look into other areas such as stealth infections or, um, yeah, like you said, psychological stress. Mm. Um, vagus nerve dysregulation is a huge one and, and one that I'm getting more, you know, an appreciation for over time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the vagus nerve dysregulation? Yeah, sure. So the, the good old sort of link between the, the gut and the brain, mm. um, that access being a two-way highway, as they say. So signals coming from the gut microbiome up through those nerves to the brain and communicating what's happening down there and vice versa. Mm. And the regulation, I suppose, think being, you know, you kind of relate to it like a, a muscle and if it's got good tone and good posture and good communication, then we shouldn't see, you know, symptoms develop. If the vagus nerve, for whatever reason, whether it's infections or prolonged stress or whatever it might be, start to lead to a dysregulated vagus nerve, then we've impaired that communication between between the gut and the brain. And typically that can lead to constipation mm. um, because the, the nerve just becomes, you know, too relaxed essentially. But I have a feeling that it probably does play a, a role in the opposite of the spectrum with, you know, with diarrhea and those sort of IBSD presentations as well. So I think bringing it back to regulation is the key there. Mm. And there's good research on, you know, different devices that they've used to stimulate the vagus nerve Mm. to to strengthen it as well as at-home exercises like gargling, singing and humming and so forth. Oh, yes, humming. (laughs) (laughs) I've done that before. Okay. So seems like we need to really focus, we know, on modulating the immune system as a whole in someone that has multiple autoimmune conditions rather than just focusing on one system. What are your favourite ways to modulate the immune system? Great question. Probably just starting to by de- defining what it is, and obviously a lot mm. of the listeners will know already, but those compounds, whether it be herbal or probiotic or peptide or whatever it might be, that have the ability to, the ability to raise the, the immune system where it's kind of defective and exhausted, and to reduce it, you know, where it's over-exaggerated, mm-hmm. such as the case in, in allergy or autoimmunity. So herbals are probably my favourite to answer your question, and there's lots that I'm sure you and I both would share, do a great job of that. These <laughs> you, amidesmus, you know, curcumin, mm. all the basics. Medicinal mushrooms, I've, I've always been a big fan of cordyceps in particular. Mm. But I am looking at more novel therapies at the minute and, and peptides are sort of an area that come up that I've done some self-experimentation with mm. with my own autoimmunity and guinea pigs myself there. But peptides, I feel like are that kind of bridge between naturopathic medicine and pharmaceutical, mm. but somewhere in between. A lot of them are scheduled mm. and not available to us here in Australia. 
Overseas, however, they're sort of initially discovered in Europe, and there's a lot of European research sort of dating back to the 70s and 80s where they were initially very popular with different conditions. But in terms of the immunomodulator you know, realm with peptides, we're really looking at the thymus peptides. Mm. And um, if I back up a little bit, just to explain, so the thymus is that gland that sits behind the breastbone, and after the age of 10 to 15, just sort of atrophies over time very, very slowly and correlates with age, essentially. So mm. with... I guess you could sort of argue with centenarians and folks that do live a very long age that they probably do have less of an accelerated thymus atrophy or mm. thymus involution. So as a naturopath, I'm really fascinated by that and I'm looking at you know anything in terms of what compounds can delay that process or bring back some strength to, to that very gland because that's the one that makes T-cells. That's and what I was thinking, yeah. That's the gland that spits out the T-cells. Exactly, mm. exactly. So, so anything that... I guess affects that, whether that be self-infections, stress, trauma, and so forth, all the things we've kind of talked about, toxins, anything that's stressed that thymus and accelerated that thymus atrophy theoretically raises the risk of autoimmunity mm. and maybe some other conditions too related to the immune system. But coming back to the peptides, the thymus, <laughs> that's a <laughs> Peptides! My, my brain's sort of going in that eight directions at the minute, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're the class of um, peptides that I think are very specific in the, in the conversation um, mm. of autoimmunity. So there's thymus and alpha-1, thymus and beta-4 or TB-500. And um, these are peptides that either administered sort of orally or injected subcutaneously. There's not a whole, whole heap of research, but the research that there is in animal models and human models is mm. really promising. So yeah. I'm sure we'll see in the next decade or two, that area will really explode. And functional medicine in the States at the the moment, because there's a lot of areas where peptide use is cleared by the FDA, is showing some really promising results in the fields of autoimmunity, as well as in things like, you know, self-infections and chronic inflammatory response syndrome and immune suppression. So I think anything that interplays with that thymus may have a really promising um, Mm. outlook on how that lends to autoimmunity, because... If those regulatory T cells become dysfunctional, Mm. which they do, we know that happens in autoimmunity, then we do set the scene for autoimmunity because there's a loss of that tolerance and there's no troops. The T cells, the regulatory cells, they're the kind of troops that say, hey, everyone calm down and chill out and let's let's get balanced and stop responding over there and prevent that that hyperpolarization. So if there does become peptides available for us to, to bring that you know, that clarity and balance back to the immune system. And that's Mm. really promising for autoimmunity. Yeah, I think we will see something along those lines because I was watching a video actually of a researcher from UTS, the University of Technology in Sydney, and she's researching a specific peptide um, actually derived from the liver fluke, uh, so a helminth, and they were giving it to animals who had multiple sclerosis, which, you know, has an autoimmune component to it. Ah, yes, yes, I do remember hearing that. Yeah, so they... It actually modulated the immune system in the animals with MS and the the researchers were actually looking for funding to then do some studies in humans. So I think peptides probably will become more of a thing here in Australia once we've got that human research to back it up. Yeah, 100%. And, and that's super, super promising. And there's a lot of the minute that aren't scheduled that are, um, I say, available. Mm. And they're more of the oral class of peptides, more gut specific, mm. um, such as BPC-157, which is body protective complex 157, 
And a more novel one, which has um, got me quite excited, is called the Razotide Acetate. And that one, they call it the celiac peptide. Mm. I believe that one's on its way to being approved by the FDA just as a commonplace sort of treatment once a celiac disease diagnosis has been made. And the way it works is, is via antagonizing zonulins. So zonulins mm. are that, that protein that opens up the tight junctions and the Velcro that line the gut. So preventing that from happening, um, I suppose you could argue it is more allopathic, but hey, why not combine the best of both of those worlds? Oh, look, Um, I think that's really, really important too. It doesn't have to be one or the other. It it can be both. So I think it's really important for us to be supporting our patients with both where where it's required, you know, and I think sometimes quite a lot of the time that results in better patient outcomes. Any other therapies? Any So we've talked a bit about the HERS. We've talked about the peptides. What about nutrients? I don't know if you're still a fan of vitamin D. Tell me, are you? <laughs> it's controversial. Ooh, vitamin, vitamin D controversy, yeah. yeah. No, look, long story short, I, I sort of rarely describe vitamin D anymore. Um, but I, that does, does not sort of mean that I don't recognise the amazing literature we have on how it is placed with the immune system. But what I often do... With, with patients is educate them that it's not all about vitamin D mm. and that vitamin D has to act in concert and synergy with vitamin A or mm. retinol, which is the animal form, mm. and it's all about the ratio. So to activate one unit of vitamin D, you need 10 units of retinol for that to work, and that's mediated by that sort of RXR receptor. And the vitamin D receptor itself actually needs retinol to, to work also. So it's, a, it's a, a symphony of those nutrients. I'm a big fan of cod liver oil. Mm. Because it is that 10 to 1 ratio of retinol to, to D and you get the beneficial, you know, omega-3 fatty acid compounds in there too, which helps support, you know, the inflammatory response. So a lot of my autoimmune patients are getting cod liver oil. Mm. And A and D, those fat-soluble nutrients, are very well researched with restoring T regulatory cell function. So you get a lot out of that that one sort of source or medicine. But apart from that, beta glucans from medicinal mushroom extracts, Great if you've got that autoimmune case where there is still, you know, underlying stealth infections or even really overt infections. Mm. I think it's important to say you can have autoimmunity going on as well as someone who has really poor immune response and gets a lot of those recurrent um, infections. In addition to that, glutathione, huge, huge fan of, and there's probably not one patient these days that doesn't get glutathione at some stage in their journey with me wow. because it's just such a strong, yeah, T1, T2, T17 modulator. Um, oh, my and also get a lot of the toxin release and move, movement of toxins and bile and liver support through that pathway too. Mm. Can I ask and what sort of dose sure. you do there? Yeah, so I usually start with five mil per day. Once they're at a certain stage, mind you, I never never go in with something like glutathione or anything too detoxy, you know, straight out of the, out of the gates. Mm. And um, I've had some patients, particularly if they feel like they're coming down with something or they're about to have a flare, go up to sort of 20 mil a day. Um, in, in divided doses with good results. Mm, I've never, never used it for autoimmunity. Okay, awesome. Mm, Excellent. Mm. Apart from that, a big fan of, as I mentioned earlier, the herbals. So astragalus, romania, fever few. The herbals are, are super, super key. And again, you know, all my patients get a, a herbal tonic. Mm. That doesn't look identical. You know, I always customise it to, to the patient. And the beauty of that is you can throw the nervings in there if, if there is a lot of stress or whatever it might be. Mm. And um, the probiotics as well. So L-paracasea, LP33 and lactobacillus rhamnosus GG um, have quite good literature on their ability to extend Treg cell function and mm. downregulate TH17 pathways. 
And then there's more compounds from the dietary, you know, aspects, which I try and really push as well. So, um, you know, EGCG from green tea, for example, great inhibitor of reactive oxygen species and silicon-17. Um, and I'm using a lot of berberine at the minute because there's a particular, you know, phytozyme or phytosome constituent, I suppose you call it, that does get into, you know, areas above and beyond just the gut. So this, this is great for your patient who's autoimmune but also might have a lot of insulin resistance mm. um, and those sort of infections that you're suspecting that are hiding in, in different nooks and crannies in the body. I think that any medicine that we can get into those those areas where we, we know it's not just going through the gut um, yeah. Are really promising too. There's good anti-EBV literature with berberine in particular as well. Oh, great. Excellent. Mm. Okay, so there's loads of good tips there with regards to therapeutics. Now, what about lifestyle? Because definitely the more I'm in practice, the more clients I see with autoimmune kind of stuff going on, the more emphasis I'm placing on lifestyle strategies and mindset changes. So how important do you think, like I place a lot of importance in, with regards to that in my clinic, but how important do you find those factors with assisting with modulating the immune system in your clients? Put it this way, I think if someone was still working under fluorescent lights in a super stressful job and having that major deficit disorder, that MDD, I don't think you'd get anywhere with, with any of these compounds, as amazing as they all are. And if you stack them all up, if the patient was still not exercising, you know, the healthy circadian rhythm, mm. grounding, you know, sunlight, nature time, separation from, from people and getting their own time and, and putting all those things into place, I don't think they'd get far with it. So it's, it's heavily, heavily crucial. And there was an article done um, a literature article that came out about just what it is from nature that has those immune mod- modulatory effects. And I can't remember how they did it exactly, but they essentially took a, people with a lot of known diagnosed inflammatory disorders and exposed them to different compounds in nature and so forth and studied their immune system and their immune response. And what they saw was that a lot of the anti-inflammatory pathways kicked in and a lot of the anti-inflammatory genes kicked in and a lot of the pro-inflammatory mediators were sort of attenuated and they put mm. a lot of it down to what's inhaled mm. and as well as what's touched. So they were talking about the phenolic acids from different plant compounds and essential oils that are sort of inhaled through, you know, just like a nature walk, for example. I also talked about the contact with the soil and, and what's happening at a microbial level with the gut microbiome. And again, that's we've known that for a long time with that disconnected microbiome, which you know happens from a variety of different methods and how much that impacts things like allergies and heightens the risk for autoimmunity later on in life and things like that. So I suppose it's a bit of a no-brainer that there's definitely something to the nature exposure and the more we get away from that as a civilised society, Mm. perhaps the the higher the chances, unfortunately, that we will see more autoimmune syndromes um, present. But in getting back to nature, conversely, do we then see hopefully that sort of reversal and that that remittance from all that? So, yeah, it's really exciting. Yeah, I've seen in Canada they have a thing called park prescriptions where going out in green space is actually part of the prescriptive advice. One last thing, with regards to connection and fun, how important do you think that is? Because I think when someone's diagnosed with an autoimmune condition mm. or multiple, there's this real focus. I mean, as you said, they're overwhelmed, they're yeah. they're scared, but also there's this real focus on, okay, we've got to take out the gluten and we've got to do this yes. and we've got to do that. And I think it can really put people into this sympathetic overdrive that they're kind yeah. of already in. How important is that fun and connection? Because I think it's something people with autoimmune conditions often kind of miss. Well, put it this way, when I got away from all that and I 
everything that I anticipated happening was quite the opposite. I went, yeah. I went way backwards. Why? Because I got disconnected from all the things that previously brought me joy and balance mm. to life. Mm. And, yeah, as I said earlier, I was experimenting with a lot of things that on paper looked amazing, but the lifestyle, the connection, the social connections, the activities and the hobbies that bring you joy that separate you from all this, you know, it's really good to know about all this, but you have to get away from it as well. Mm. And you have to feel like you're not living this alienated, excluded life. Mm. Um, and for me personally, with celiac disease being diagnosed, that's exactly what I then suddenly sort of felt. I went from being someone who never experienced anything like that um, in my life to then having all this alienation and social, you know, disconnection. And that, I think, only drives that inflammation and that mm. sympathetic nervous system response, like you say. So um, it's... it's it's not only, you know, um, something that you should do, it's, it's, it's vital as part of the prescription. So I, I recommend patients, you know, 20 to 25 minutes per day. It's part of the prescription. You know, it's like take your herbs, do the diet, take this at this time and insert, you know, in that, in that prescription 20 to 25 minutes a day of a nature walk or, you know, getting in the ocean or whatever it might be. It's, mm. just, it's crucial, non-negotiable. Mm. Mm. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. I feel like you've provided us with so much excellent information to implement. Key points, oh, pleasure. Key points that I have taken away from today would be a lot of therapeutics. Um, I love the idea of the cod liver oil, the D in combination with the vitamin A um, for that mm. T cell regulatory function, but probably also for the gut, um, it would have that effect yeah. there too. The peptides, I think, are a really exciting emerging mm. area of research for us to kind of know more about. Um, and then the glutathione, I think it's very, very exciting for modulating the immune system, particularly those T1, T2 and T17 cells. Yeah. Um, love, love, love all of that. Um, thank you. Pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. It's been fun. <laughs> thank you, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's episode on the FX Medicine website. I'm Lisa Costabier and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. FX Medicine is not just a podcast. We also have free articles, infographics, and a monthly email newsletter, all designed to build your clinical expertise. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for our newsletter and get your latest free content.